This morning's reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Jesus predicts his death a third time. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Thank you very much, Mark and, and Anne. So, it's only a week since we celebrated Easter Day. With all its wonderful significance for Christians both here and around the world. Uh, and last Sunday, you'll remember that Paul Lindsay reminded us vividly of all that we have to be thankful for uh, at this time of year, the, the historical fact of Jesus' death and his burial, but also his glorious resurrection from the dead. Truly, the resurrection gives us something to shout about, and Easter Day is the highlight, for me anyway, of the Christian year, and I'm sure it is for many of you too. So I hope that you are able to celebrate appropriately uh, the Easter message last weekend. Easter is so important to our faith that it would be a shame, really, wouldn't it, if we allowed uh, the meaning just to slip away. The Easter message informs everything that we do and everything we think of as, as Christians. And so what I wanted to do this morning was just to reflect a little bit more on the Easter story and think about some of the, the various layers that underlie what we thought about last week. Now, some of you will know that the week before Easter, Anne and I went out to Spain to visit our daughter, Zoe, who's working out there. And it was quite an eye-opener for us uh, because in, in the southern part of Spain in particular, 
Holy Week is celebrated in some style. I've got just one or two pictures to show you of um, what we saw when we were in Spain. So um, this is one of the processions um, in Seville. So different churches process from their own churches to the cathedral and then back again. And these um, rather unusual costumes are those worn by the penitents, people who want to express that they are seeking forgiveness of their sins. And the tall conical hoods, which I think probably now have a slightly um, sinister connotation to us, their historical significance is that they were worn so that someone could uh, demonstrate their penitence anonymously. Everybody looks the same. Nobody could see who was underneath. I think there's another slide. I think the next slide is some more of these uh, people walking in penitence. You may be able to see one or two of them are even walking barefoot. On the next slide, you can see one of... There are, each procession carries two enormous floats. One of the floats is decorated, as this one is, in gold and features images of Christ. So sometimes that will be an image of Christ on the cross. Sometimes it will be an image representing a part of the story of Holy Week. So that might be Palm Sunday or it might be the Last Supper. Um, but there are these huge floats carried by um, people who are chosen to carry uh, the float. And there's probably 30 or 40 men under that float carrying it. And then the next one is at the end of each float, there's a similar, or oh, sorry, at the end of each procession, there's a similar float um, featuring the Virgin Mary, dressed in finery and, as you see, adorned uh, with lots of candles. And there are, in, certainly in Seville in particular, there are at least four of these processions from different churches every day of the week throughout Holy Week. So it sort of feels a bit as if the entire city has been taken over. So final slide, again, is some of the penitents, again, who actually carry replica crosses as an indication of their uh, identification with Jesus' sacrifice for them. So that was the last picture. I'm not going to bore you with all of our holiday slides or we'd be here all morning. Now, obviously, Spain is a, a staunchly Catholic country, and the traditions of these Holy Week processions, including the regalia and the candles and the incense, are not ones that are familiar to us, and they are traditions that we actually might feel slightly, uh, we might find it slightly difficult to identify with. But nevertheless, these processions that happen every year are an example of a community that does something as a constant reminder of something that's important to them. And one thing that I can feel fairly sure about, unlike some of the reports you see in this country, I suspect that there are very few small Spanish children who grow up thinking that Easter is principally about chocolate eggs and bunnies. If we were asked why Jesus died, we might come up with a variety of different answers, mightn't we? So if I asked you this morning, why did Jesus die? Some of you might come up with an answer that was coming from a, a historical perspective, perhaps. 
You might say, well, Jesus died because the Roman authorities and the Jewish leadership saw him as a threat to their authority. He was at best an inconvenience, and at worst, he was a dangerous rabble-rouser. And both the Romans and the Jewish leaders thought really the best, the easiest thing for them was to get him out of the way and arrange for him to be bumped off. That would be a reason why Jesus died. Some of you might answer the question with a theological reason. You might want to look behind the events of Easter Day and beyond the immediate reasons for Jesus' death and find some underlying purpose in the purposes of God. You might well come up with the conclusion that Jesus died in order to fulfill some of the prophecies in the Old Testament about a Messiah and about a Savior and someone who was coming to establish God's kingdom on earth. So some of you might have historical answers to the question, some might have theological ones, and some might just have a personal answer to the question. A personal answer to the question why Jesus died might, in the words of the well-known hymn, simply be, he died that we might be forgiven. So there's a wide variety of reasons that we could offer why Jesus died. And actually, they're all true. They're all correct. These are not answers which are at odds with one another. There are historical, there are theological, there are personal reasons why Jesus died. And all of these different reasons relate to each other and help to explain each other. The personal reason, the reason that Jesus died that we might be forgiven, is perhaps the easiest one to relate to. But if that's all that we take from the Easter story, then we might sometimes look around the world and think, well, what, what does our personal faith say about some of these issues that are going on in the world? We thought last week quite a lot with, with Paul Lindsay, didn't we, about the way that we can be forgiven. And I don't want to diminish the importance of that. Indeed, most of us are probably here this morning because we have appreciated at some time in our lives that forgiveness of sins is available to us through our faith in the one who died for us on the cross. And I praise God for that. But when we look around the world and we see the challenges that the world faces from wars and political strife, from constant attacks even on the very idea of living in peace with our neighbors, simply knowing that we have personal forgiveness might sometimes leave us wondering what relevance our faith has in the modern world or whether actually perhaps God might have an even bigger plan. So when I was planning this sermon, I gave it um, a working title of the full meaning of Easter, and I intended to try and come up with a better title than that, and I never really got round to it. So that's why in the news sheet you'll see that the title of the sermon is the full meaning of Easter. And all I really meant was by that was that the Easter story has different layers of meaning, and we can really enrich our experience of Easter by looking at those different layers of meaning. So the death of Jesus resonates in our personal lives, but also at a theological level, a wider level, 
and also, dare we say it, at a political level. And this passage that we looked at from Mark chapter 10 deals with all of these different aspects of the Easter story. And looking at the passage can help us to understand these different facets of Jesus' death. So let's, let's reflect first on what the world was like for a Jew in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. We know from the situation today in Jerusalem how sensitive an issue control of that city is. And it was no different then. Jerusalem, the holy city, the place where the temple of God was to be found, was under foreign occupation. Those in authority in the city were an occupying foreign power, the Roman Empire. And the Jews were only able to go about their everyday religious observance and practice their faith with the permission and the consent of the Romans. And the Romans left no one in doubt as to who was in charge. We think of the cross as a symbol of Christianity. We have a cross hanging in our church. We have a cross outside. Many of you will be wearing a cross in some way or another. But even before the cross was a symbol of Christianity, it was a symbol, a symbol of Roman power. If you committed a crime against the Roman Empire or stepped out of line, they would kill you. And they wouldn't just kill you in a quiet, discreet way out of the way, but they would do it publicly. They would hang you on a cross in a very public place and leave you there as an example to others. What they were saying to, to people was, you, you take issue with the Romans and this is where you'll end up. The cross was a symbol of the fact that the Romans were in charge. It was a very prominent and visible symbol of the power of their empire. So when in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus takes the disciples aside and says to them that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles, i.e. handed over to the Roman authorities, you can imagine what his followers thought. The man who they thought was their Messiah, the one who they expected to deliver them from the power of the occupying authority, was actually saying to them that he was going to be delivered up into the hands of those very authorities. He allowed himself to be subjected to the worst that the Roman authorities could throw at him. But instead of being crushed and defeated by the cross, he defeated it and rose again. So he had authority over death, and by implication, his authority exceeded that of Rome. So the resurrection declares that the true king was no longer Caesar, but Jesus himself. So there's no doubt that to first century believers, the message of Easter was, in small part, a political one. Now, to be fair to the disciples, they also appreciated that there was a deeper significance to what Jesus was describing. What the disciples said to Jesus points to a sort of theological meaning. 
James and John asked Jesus if they could sit on either side of him in his glory. So they knew that Jesus' death was leading him towards a future in which he would occupy a place of honor and glory. There's a parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel which talks about Jesus' kingdom. So the discussion of who will sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand and the idea that there's a baptism that he's to be baptized with all points to a wider theological significance. It points to a kingdom that's going to be established. It talks about how that kingdom will be established, what sort of kingdom it will be, and what sort of king it will have. Jesus says to James and John that the places beside him have been prepared. So there's a sense in which Jesus is about to take up his throne and those who sit alongside him will have a very special place in his kingdom. So how will the kingdom that Jesus speaks of be established? And the answer of that is through suffering. Jesus talks about um, the cup. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? The cup reappears, doesn't it, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus talks about the cup being taken from him. It's a symbol of God's wrath. So Jesus will only progress to this place where he will have a place of honor and glory by first passing through suffering. What will his kingdom be like? The Roman Empire was one where power was concentrated in the hands of a few self-serving rulers who exerted their authority by extortion and fear. Will the kingdom of God be the same? No, of course not. It will be a kingdom where the first shall be last and the last first. Where those who want real authority will need to be servants of all. So we're also told what sort of a king the kingdom of God will have. It will have a servant king. Whoever whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus exemplifies the new way of life that he expects in this new kingdom. So then the passage that we read um, comes to a climax with the statement that we can all identify with and rejoice about. Son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us. And so we can share in a very personal way in the benefits that Jesus has won by his death. Now, a ransom, of course, is a sum that's paid to release a captive. Jesus has paid the price for us to be released from captivity. The other thing about a ransom is that it says a lot about the relationship between the payer and the captive. It's a sign of the great value that the payer attaches to the captive that he's willing to pay a high price to secure the release of the captive. And so it shows how much we are loved 
that the price paid by Jesus was so high. So, as well as the huge significance that Jesus' resurrection had as a demonstration of his victory over the earthly power of Rome, and in addition to the significance as a theological statement of Jesus taking his place in heaven, it's important that we see the personal element too, that we see that we can personally enjoy the fruits of his sacrifice. So what does all this mean for, how we believe, for what we believe as Christians and how we should live? Well, we can, of course, rejoice in our personal salvation. But doesn't that sometimes leave us a little frustrated at the state of the world? Jesus' death and resurrection overturned the world order in a much more fundamental way than just the forgiveness of individual sinners. Wonderful though that might be. We thought last week with Paul about the gospel as a mathematical thing, didn't we? He taught us a bit of algebra. We have a moral deficit because of our sin. Our, Our spiritual bank balance is overdrawn. But Jesus has paid the price. So we're no longer in deficit and we can enjoy an uninterrupted relationship with God. But alongside the maths lesson, it's worth having a history lesson too. Alongside the simple transactional way of looking at the gospel, it's also worth drawing on the historical and political aspects of the story. Because the history lesson is the story of God's dealings with his people throughout the ages. The Easter story does have political dimensions because earthly powers come and go. And the story has a strong theological thread because it's a story designed to reveal the character of God and his plans for the world. Jesus took on the might of the Roman Empire and by his death he stripped its most powerful symbol of its power. Throughout the ages, earthly powers have persecuted Christians or at least tried to marginalize them because they realize that people whose loyalty is to Christ will not submit blindly to an evil regime. In Eastern Europe during the communist era, there was real hostility to Christians. In China today and in North Korea, there are regimes with many similar characteristics to the Roman Empire. The symbols of power might not be the same, but the ruthless way in which they try to prevent people from worshipping the true God are much the same. Jesus took the cross, which was the symbol of an earthly power, and transformed it into the symbol of a sacrificial suffering servant king. So we can have confidence that the kingdom of God will prevail. When, we, when this sermon was, was planned, it wasn't originally intended to be part of the Hope series. In fact, it was intended to be a one-off. But nevertheless, you can see that the true Easter message really does provide hope for people in parts of the world where they feel that they are oppressed 
by an unsympathetic government. When we look at the earthly powers who appear to, uh, appear to wield authority in the world today, we can be confident that Christ has already defeated those powers. He's the king in the kingdom that really matters. So finally, returning to the personal and the theological angle. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, demonstrates that he has taken up the place of supreme authority in a new kingdom. We are to serve him. We are citizens of that new kingdom. We should be like him. And if he's a servant king, then we should be servants too. Servants of each other and servants of our local community. And the personal message, the personal um, message that Jesus has paid the ransom to set us free is indeed a thrilling message, one that's wonderful beyond words. But even more thrilling is the fact that our personal salvation is part of a greater plan, a plan in which earthly powers will fade and Jesus will be established as king. We're citizens of his kingdom and we have places of glory and authority beside him as his honored children. So the Easter message is one that's inexhaustible in its depth and its relevance to our lives. So let's live as resurrection people with all, of, all that that involves. Let's thank God for paying the ransom for us that we personally can now enjoy a relationship with him untainted by sin. But let's also remember that we've been saved in order to be part of a community of service, a kingdom with a servant king. And let's remember too that in this complex world in which we live, earthly powers will come and go. But the one true power is everlasting. And that King Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.